The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. Chapter number 18. Today is the very last message in the series that we've entitled God's at War. And over the last month and a half, uh, we've been really diving into this subject of idolatry and how it even seeps into the life of the believer. And so 2 Kings chapter number 18 will be our text. Um, Inside your service program, you'll find an outline that you can use to follow along through the message this morning. I hope it'll be a help to you as we uh, study here the Bible together. Um, If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand here uh, as we read from our text, 2 Kings chapter number 18. This is kind of the bookend of our series, and so uh, we've spent the last few weeks looking at different areas that have the potential of elevating themselves in our hearts to places of authority, uh, to places of uh, really agenda setting. And today we're going to kind of put another bookend as we conclude this series, God's at War, uh, with a sermon we're simply calling the idolatry of tradition. The idolatry of tradition. Second Kings chapter number 18, verse number 1. A very interesting story. We'll read this portion and then I'll give you some background. And then we'll dive into it and kind of work our way wrestling through the text a little bit this morning. The Bible says in Second Kings chapter number 18, verse number 1. Now it came to pass in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. So we get a little history there. Verse number 2, 20 and 5 years old was Hezekiah when he began to reign. So he was a young king, he was a young man, and he reigned 20 and 9 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name also was Abai, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did, this is uh, Hezekiah, Hezekiah did that which was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that David his father did. Now notice what he does. It gets really interesting and this is what we're going to focus on here today. The Bible says Hezekiah removed the high places and break the images And cast down the groves. You see Jerusalem. uh, We see the Jews here. Had entered into spiritual idolatry. They would go to these groves. And the high places. And they would literally worship. And so Hezekiah is a godly king. Says no there's only one true God. And we're going to worship him. And so as a godly king. He comes and destroys these things. Now this is interesting. And. Broken pieces. The brazen serpent. That Moses had made. You say, why? Hadn't God given him that brass serpent? Here's why. For unto those days, the children of Israel did burn incense to it. And he, Hezekiah, called it Nehushtan. (laughs) You say, what does that mean? 700 years has passed from the time where Moses had used that brass serpent... To really incorporate and help them focus on God once again. And now all of a sudden over the course of time that brass serpent no longer just reminded the children of Israel of God's goodness. It was becoming the object of worship. And so Hezekiah as he breaks it in pieces he calls it Nehushtan. Just this brass thing is the literal interpretation like no big deal. Because they had elevated it above God. You see, it is possible for religious traditions, 
for spiritual so-called things to be elevated even above God himself. And that's what we're going to unpack a little bit here today. This morning, I want to speak on the subject of idolatry of tradition, specifically religious traditions. Shall we pray? Dear gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. And Lord, I'm so thankful for a church, Lord, that has a heart to glorify you, that wants their lives to make a difference and to shine forth the light of Christ. But Lord, may we never get to a place, Lord, where what we do becomes a higher priority to us than who you are. And may we not look to religious traditions for our righteousness. May we not look to uh, the spiritual artifacts, Lord, that you bring into our lives as something that can ultimately satisfy and fulfill. But Lord, may we be reminded afresh and anew today that it is God and God alone that satisfies. It's God and God alone that fulfills, and you alone are worthy of all glory and all honor. Lord, use this text, this passage, to really help us be aware of how even good things can be elevated, Lord, in an improper way in our hearts and in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Every single one of us have preferences. If I, if I were to stand up and say uh, Pepsi or Coke, all right, I think most of you would say, ah, I probably have a, a preference of the two. If, if I were to say something like, you know, along the lines of maybe uh, Ford or Chevy, uh, some of us may have right now, if you look at our parking lot, if I were to say Fiat and uh, Ford, you know, uh, just kind of looking around a little bit here today, uh, you see that there are certain types of preferences that we have. And in and of themselves, preferences are a very wonderful thing. They're a good thing. They're a healthy thing. We have preferences about the foods we like. We have aesthetic preferences. If we go into your home, some of you will decorate your homes a little different than others of you will decorate your homes. Even in the clothes we wear and the choices we have in styles, it's a little bit different. Some of you have certain preferences in this style and some of you prefer bold, loud colors and you like to wear and others of you like to kind of wear things that are more toned down and not so ostentatious and we have uh, personality preferences there are certain types of people that we are drawn to and, and not because we dislike or hate somebody with a different personality it's just our personality tends to click with certain types of people and it just doesn't click with other types of people we have, we have relational preferences and, and whether we realize it or not we also have what our theological friends theologian friends would refer to as ecclesiological preferences. You say, what in the world are you talking about? Ecclesiological preferences would be your and my preferences when it comes to issues of the church, all right? That's a fancy theological term for church, ecclesiology. And we see that our preferences about church methodology when it comes to church preferences, most people within the church have a tendency. I think all of us, the longer we're in church world, have to be more and more careful of this because the longer we're in church, the more we allow these ecclesiological preferences, these church preferences, they have a tendency to elevate what is simply their personal preference to a position of moral supremacy. 
That is, we come to a place where we have preferences about, you know, religious things and, and ecclesiological things, and, and we have per- certain types of things that we would like, and then all of a sudden, over time, the longer we're in church, the longer we're involved in these things, we allow, maybe even unconsciously, these things to elevate, these personal preferences to be elevated to a point where now all of a sudden we look at them as literally morally supreme, morally superior to everybody else's religious preferences and traditions. And when we come to that place, I'm going to say this, we are in a very, very dangerous spot as a congregation. You say, why even talk about this? A proper perspective on traditions and religious preferences fosters a spirit of humility. It fosters a spirit of unity within families, within churches, and within communities. Few things give people a superiority complex quicker than the idolatry of religious tradition and preferences. Down throughout Christian history, and and you could study the last 2,000 years, the enemy has used the idolatry of tradition and preference to create disunity, division, and literally distraction among believers. So our theme this morning, kind of the frame which we are going to study this entire passage through, is simply this. Good things can become bad things when they become supreme things. And we're going to unpack this theme from the passage we just read a moment ago. Now, to give us a holistic context here, we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. It's very interesting that this story found in 2 Kings chapter number 18 is found in several places throughout the Scriptures. You'll find this story talked about in Isaiah, in Psalms. You'll find it talked about in the book of Numbers. And as you study these different places throughout Scripture where this story is referred to, it gives you a very holistic kind of perspective about what's going on on here in this passage. So if you want to, you can go back to Numbers chapter number 21, and I'm going to kind of paraphrase, capsulate a little bit what took place. How did this brass serpent, this thing that God had given, get to a place where all of a sudden now the children of Israel are bowing down, literally in a pagan manner, in a, in a spirit of idolatry, worshiping this thing that God had given them a few hundred years earlier as a gift as a thing to remind them about who he was and about his power. The Bible says in Numbers chapter number 21 that the people began to grumble against God. The children of Israel had left Egypt. All of a sudden here they're, they're freed from the tyranny of Pharaoh. And they're not out in the desert for very long until all of a sudden here they are and they're complaining. They're griping about this. They're grumbling about that. They're complaining about these things. And you can just tell. They're like, we had it better off in Egypt. And and Moses is like scratching his head thinking, think about what you're saying. You literally think it was better in Egypt. And they're just complaining. The food's not right. It's too hot in the sun. Moses isn't a good leader. Complaining, griping, grumbling. And finally God's like, we got to help these guys, you know, kind of, get their focus right back. And, and so literally the Bible says that God sends snakes into the camp. And these snakes start biting the children of Israel. And in fact, as they're biting, all of a sudden people are getting extremely sick. Many people are beginning to die. 
And it's in the context of that disease and that pain that Moses and the people once again want to hear what God has to say. Their hearts are beginning to soften. They're not complaining quite so much. And so God says here to Moses, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to use this moment to help remind the children of Israel about who I am and what I can accomplish and what power I have. And so he tells Moses, I want you to build a brass fiery serpent. He says, I want you to, I want you to mold this thing and I want you to place it on a big pole right in the middle of the camp. And God says this, whoever will have the faith simply to look onto it, whoever will just believe my words and look, they'll be saved. They'll be cleansed. They'll be healed of their diseases. And so Moses does it, and it happens. He raises that brass serpent that God told him to build. He raises it in the middle of the camp. And literally, as people turned their eyes, as they simply believed what God's word had to say, and looked unto that, literally their diseases were cleansed. They were made whole. It was an incredible victory in the life of the children of Israel here in that day. And there was celebration going on. It was a wonderful, exciting time here for the children of Israel. You can imagine thinking you were about to die and now you got a new lease on life. It was exciting for them. Somebody said, you know what? God used this. God told us to build this. And, and I don't know exactly how it happened, but somebody took it down at some point once everybody was healed. I don't know if they wrapped it in some styrofoam, put, put a little cotton around that thing. They just packed it away. And for the rest of their journey through the wilderness, they carried that thing along with them. Fast forward 500 years. Solomon's temple has been built. It's beautiful. It's magnificent. It's gorgeous. And somebody stands up and they find here this brass serpent. And they put it up. And at first it was a reminder. Oh yeah. Remember what God did for our ancestors in the desert. And it was literally a symbolic artifact that helped the children of Israel to remember what God had done in the wilderness. It wasn't a bad thing. I will say to kind of balance this thing out. God never actually told them to put it up. But he didn't say he could, they couldn't either because they were using it in a proper manner. It was something that they would look to. It was something that would remind them. And, and I could only imagine that maybe a, a dad would walk his son through and, and they would see that brass snake and the son would say, Dad, what's that all about? And the dad would begin to tell the story to his son. And that story would really uh, foster itself in the heart of that child. And it would really help him to remember that, that God is all-powerful. That God can do miracles. And that God truly is glorious and majestic and wonderful. But slowly over time, that brass serpent stopped being a reflection to God's glory. And began to steal God's glory. Now we're 700 years later, six, 700 years, depending on the exact chronologic, chronologically here. But all of a sudden, the time comes, Hezekiah comes on the scene. He's a young man, loves the Lord, has a passion for God. By this time, they had taken that brass serpent, and now they were literally worshiping it as a god. Burning incense before it. They allowed this, this gift that God had given them, 
This thing that God used in their lives to, to direct their attention back toward him. God had used this brass serpent in an amazing way. He had given it to them as a gift. It was a wonderful thing. It was a good thing. It was a glorious thing. And now 700 years later, and all of a sudden this brass serpent has become an idol. No longer is it helping people reflect the attention back to God. No longer is it helping people see God more clearly and reminding God of his goodness, reminding them of God's goodness and his glory. Now all their attention is on that thing. And they're worshiping it. They have given it a place of authority in their hearts. They were looking to that thing to give them satisfaction. Looking to that thing to give them fulfillment. And they would worship it as a God, as a religious artifact. Fast forward to the 21st century. Here we are today. And for many of us, God has used things in our lives to help us. To redirect our attention on Him. They were things that God used to help us to focus on Him. To, to remind us of His goodness. To remind us of His greatness. To remind us of His glory. And they were tools that God used. And sometimes it's in the form of a, of a thing. And sometimes it was in the form of a person. And here in the 21st century, however, if we're not careful, those things that God gave us to be a reminder of who He is have for many of us literally taken the attention and the focus away from God. And now we are more focused on that thing that God used then than we are in allowing that thing to redirect our attention afresh and anew toward God. And that, my friend, is when a good thing becomes a bad thing. Because that bad thing was a supreme thing. We're going to talk a little bit about how that takes place. This snake had been an object in the hands of God to redeem the people. Literally, it was part of what God used in their spiritual formation. It was a wonderful gift that God used mightily. But after time, it became an object lesson of what God had done in the past. And not bad, but it was a reminder until eventually it became itself an object of worship. Which leads us here this morning to our first topic of discussion, and that is simply this. The idolatry of tradition. The idolatry of tradition. Now let me caveat this. Traditions in and of themselves are not bad. In fact, traditions can be extremely helpful. They can be extremely uh, healthy. However, when we elevate those traditions to a position that gives them equal emphasis, precedent, priority as the clear commands of Scripture, once we allow those traditions to be elevated within our heart to where it's hard to tell the difference between the tradition and the truth of God's Word, once it gets to that point, we are very, very susceptible in that moment to spiritual idolatry. Here's how it often works. How many of you have ever, maybe when you were a kid, I know I had a couple of these, uh, remember those little lucky rabbit's foot? Did anybody else have one of those when you were a kid and had different colors, you know, and I don't even know if I knew what they were at the time. It kind of looked like a keychain. And or maybe, some of, maybe some of you had like a little good luck charm or something like that. Here's what begins to happen. God will sometimes use things in our life, like we said a moment ago. 
He'll, he'll use a, a standard. He'll, he'll use a person. He'll use a thing. And those things he'll use in our spiritual formation process. And the process that he, he uses it to, to conform us into the image of Christ. And However, if we're not careful, over time, we can start to look to that thing. Whether it's a person or an artifact or something that God you know, gave us to help us redirect our attention toward him. And over time, we will start giving authority to that thing, that person, rather than allowing it to redirect our attention toward the holy and living God. Can I say this? Don't get confused. Like where the Bible says Nehushtan, it was just a thing of brass. The reality is this, that thing wasn't special. There was nothing magical about that brass serpent. It wasn't special. God was special. That's what was special. But over 700 years... They got these things mixed up. Let me give you two extreme forms of thinking we need to avoid when it comes to the, uh, what we're going to call idolatry of tradition. Because I, I have to be very careful with a sermon like this because as humans, we tend toward extremes. We're just prone toward extremes. And most of the time, extremes get us in danger. So I'm going to talk about two extreme forms of thinking that we must avoid when it comes to the idolatry of tradition. Here's the first extreme. The first extreme in our thinking can be this, that everything is a tradition and a preference. This is an extreme form of thinking that is very unhealthy. Okay? Because of the humanistic, secular society in which we live, this is more and more what is being pushed in our society. But it's an extreme form of thinking that is unscriptural and unbiblical. The extreme is everything's a tradition. Everything's a preference. There is no absolutes. There is no objective truth. It's all just a tradition. It's all just a a preference. And, And we have our traditions because we're here at this church. And other people have their traditions because they're at their church. And and everything's a tradition. And everything's a preference. Can I say this? Based on the authority of God's word, that is an extreme form of humanistic, secular thinking that does not align with this book. Oh yeah, where the Bible says, you know, thou, that, you, know you should murder. <laughs> eh, it's kind of, it's preference. <laughs> it's tradition, right? No. <laughs> it's a biblical imperative. Don't kill people. <laughs> it's one of the reasons people love our church so much. We don't, we don't kill them when they come through the lobbies. You know, we're, just, we're, we're cool like that. <laughs> we, we all understand this, right? Like, like murder, it's not like just, well, that's kind of, that's kind of ambassador's tradition. No, that's pretty absolute. That's pretty like from God. And so the four, first form of extreme thinking that we've got to be careful of, that everything's a tradition, everything's a preference, there is no absolute. That's an extreme form of thinking that doesn't align with Scripture. Now, you can have that worldview, You can have that perspective, but you can't have it if you're going to claim to believe this book. That's what I'm trying to say. You you have free will. You can believe whatever you want. But you can't can't come to that form of thinking and believe this book, all right? Uh, Not everything is just tradition. Not everything is just preference, all right? There is truth. There is absolute truth. And this book declares to us as believers what that absolute truth actually is. Now, that's one form of extreme thinking. I don't think there's too many people in here that, are, that, that struggle with this one. I mean, you're in church. That, that, you know, we, not most of us will struggle with this one, all right? Now, society, we've got to be careful because we're going to get our workplaces and this is what's being pushed in pop culture today. Everybody from, you know, I, I won't start naming names, but this is, this is highly popular today, all right? This form of thinking. It just doesn't align with scripture. Now, a little bit more of what we're going to talk about here for just a moment is the second extreme we should avoid that is more common in the church world, and that is this. 
The second extreme thinking is that there is never room for preferences within the scope of God's will. And, and that's just as extreme. To say that there's never room for a preference within the scope of God's will. Uh, the, the reality is, on many, many subjects and many, many themes within the Scripture, God gives us wisdom principles. He gives us things. He creates an umbrella. And within that umbrella, He says, hey, you can have preferences when it comes to the type of maybe food that you like. Praise God for the variety. Thank God for His creativity in that. And God will teach on some things, and within the scope of His will... He leaves room for some preferences on some things. Praise God. How many of you are thankful we don't all have to be clones? We don't all have to, you know, you know put our hair just the exact same way. That there's, there's room for some preferences on some of this stuff. There is, there is an extreme form of thinking that basically goes to say, you know what, basically they, they might say along the lines, really, there's, there's not a whole lot of room for preference. I mean, God's pretty you know, clear on all this and boom. There's, and I, I'm just going to, as we're going to move through this, is what we're going to understand is there's a lot of things that God will communicate. He gives us his principles, wisdom principles. And then we've got to make decisions based on that wisdom, based on those principles, as the Spirit of God leads us. And oftentimes... Praise the Lord. He does leave some margin for preferences within the scope of his will. Now, here's where it gets really dicey, really complicated, is when God does have some things to say on a subject. And, and we, I'm not going to dive into specifics here for just the sake of time. But there are some things in the Bible where God does have some general guidelines. And he, and he kind of creates a boundary. And he says, within these boundaries, he's like, there's room. There's room for some preferences. And, and there's a little room for tradition. And you might have a little different tra tradition that may be a little different than this person's preferences. But within these general guidelines, within his word, he's like, there's liberty, as the Apostle Paul would call it. There's freedom within that realm. See, what gets a little complicated is, is when God does have something to say, he gives room, and then we want to emphasize something more than the Bible does. That is, you know, there's, there's a little wisdom principle, and it kind of lends itself to this, and, and yet we want to emphasize it, like, way more than even the Scriptures does. And, and, and maybe you've been to churches like that, and they take an obscure passage, it could, maybe, you're like, ah, you know, and you've you got to glean that wisdom. It's like, that's all that ever gets pounded on and pushed. And it's just like to an emphasis above even that which the, the Bible, God himself, emphasizes it in that way. Or, or the Bible gives some general guidelines, and then we make our personal preference. We, within those kind of general guidelines, we choose our preference kind of within that. And, and then we start looking and evaluating everybody else's preferences within the scope of that. That and we judge them against our tradition or our preferences within that. And we almost kind of look down our noses at somebody who kind of maybe landed just a little bit different. They're still within the scope of biblical guidelines. You couldn't go to the Bible and show them why they're wrong. You couldn't go to the Bible and show them why what. Yeah, but, but because it's so strongly a part of your emotional DNA, you're just kind of like, yeah, you know. And all of a sudden we become very judgmental and very critical. And we get this superiority complex. And, and one of the reasons why unbelievers really don't like darkening the doors of a church is because of this. 
It's because they feel like every time they walk in, you know, it's like they're, you know, they're being evaluated, they're being judged. And can I just say this? Both of these extremes must be avoided. The extreme that says they're, they're, you know, everything's a tradition. Everything's a preference. There is no objective truth. That has to be avoided. So, can I say this? Be very careful that you don't call something a tradition that the Bible says is truth. And on the flip side, don't declare something absolute truth that the Bible says is tradition. Both extremes will hurt your soul and destroy a church. It will cause division, disunity, and distraction. And both, of, both have to come together because what happened here is here as Hezekiah broke down the brazen serpent, you're going to see that the people were upset. It was this thing they worshipped. This thing that they loved. This thing they cared about. And all of a sudden, here's this young leader coming in the scene. And all of a sudden, man, he breaks the thing. He destroys the thing. The very thing that once reminded them of God's glory, goodness, and greatness. Who does this king think he is? Doesn't he realize what that object is? Doesn't he realize God told Moses to make that object? Who does he think he is? That young little leader of... What is he thinking? They're upset. And Hezekiah understood what was once a great thing. Once, what was once a good snake had become a bad snake because that good snake had become a supreme snake. Traditions in and of themselves kept within their proper context are healthy. Oftentimes they're helpful. They can help us create habits that can help us move in a direction as, as long as they continually direct our attention back toward the majesty and greatness of God. They're wonderful things. And each of us have to be very careful that we don't start looking at somebody else's tradition and say, well, mine is better than theirs. Or judge why they might have it. You see, there might be some people in this room and they have some very strong traditions about certain things. Be very careful that you don't judge somebody who has stronger, stronger, you know, traditions than you do. Thinking, because you're thinking, well, if I did it like they did, I would be doing it with bad motives and I would do it with a bad heart. Maybe they can do that without a bad heart. And maybe they can do it with a right heart. And maybe those things that seem so crazy to you, God is using in a great way within their heart to continually direct their attention back to God. So on both sides of this thing, we have to be very, very gracious. That we don't look at somebody with more traditions and say, wow, they must just think they're all, they almost think they're all wonderful or something. I mean, some of the worst form of hypocrisy and pharisaicalism is when you're pharisaical toward what you think is a Pharisee. Here's what we need to get to. We need to get our eyes on Jesus. Looking unto him, the author and the finisher of our faith. If you're here today and there is a religious tradition or preference found within the scope of God's word that doesn't go outside the bounds of what God's word has to say or teach and it helps you focus on your Lord and Savior and praise God for it. And don't judge somebody that might not have that exact same tradition. And on the flip side... 
If somebody who loves you and cares about you comes and says that thing that you're calling a tradition, the thing that you think is a preference is actually a very, a very strong, absolute truth within God's word, have the humility to take counsel, to receive counsel, and let other people speak into your lives. They might be trying to help you. The enemy might be convincing you that it's just kind of case or or It's just tradition. It's just a preference. And so if I don't do it, it's no big deal. And maybe it's a little bigger deal than you think it is. And both of us need to get in tune with God's word and be humble before the spirit of God and let his word and his spirit bring us to a place of biblical balance. To compare yourselves with yourselves is unwise, the scriptures teach. And so each of us evaluating our heart before God and humble enough when God would send people into our lives to graciously speak into what God's doing in that way. Have the courage to be loud when the Bible is loud. And have the patience to be quiet where the Bible is quiet. And this is tough. But maybe where the Bible is silent, maybe we should be silent. Throughout Christian history, we've struggled with these things. It's not just a modern thing. Those of you who have maybe taken some seminary classes, you've maybe been to, you know, Bible school or something like that, or maybe just in the institute, maybe you do a lot of reading, you'll find that this stuff was happening in the Old Testament. By the time you come to Acts chapter number 15, you're going to already seeing it starting to take root in the New Testament. Peter and Paul go at it over this exact same stuff, fighting over what's tradition and what's absolute truth. And, and literally, the Apostle Paul and Peter, you want to study it sometime? Go to it. And this is exactly what they're, I mean, here these great giants of the faith, and, and they're, they're struggling, wrestling with this stuff. We have our issues today. Oh man, rather than just keeping our hearts fixed on Christ, rather than being led of his spirit and allowing these traditions to push our attention toward him, all of a sudden, if we're not careful, we can allow these good traditions, these good things to be elevated and elevated and elevated. And I'm going to declare to you today, I have some traditions. I have some very strong preferences. I'm not, and I just need to say that to our congregation. I have them. But I want to be very careful to be able to discern between what is my traditions and what is absolute truth based on God's word. And so if we're not careful, we get to a place where we allow our preferences, our traditions to be elevated to a place that is unhealthy. In our world today, we get preferences about the aesthetics within a church building. In a lot of congregations, this is a big deal. I'm really thankful that our church kind of was able to move through this one. Uh, for those of you who've been around, we've only been in this facility about six months. Six months ago, let's be honest folks, so those of you who are around here, our buildings before were a whole lot prettier. <laughs> put it bluntly. They're pretty gorgeous. Hey, this is what God gave us and we're thankful for it. It was just much smaller and we had to make a choice. Do we stay in something that seats 75, 95 people that's beautiful and ornate and gorgeous or do we set aside our aesthetical preference and move into something that doesn't quite have the same aesthetic beauty to it so we can reach more? And we had to wrestle through that one. And by God's grace, man, we, f we went through that with flying colors. 
this, this comes up about, pre- we all have different preferences depending on your background and things about your preferences within ch- uh, church methodology and, and how churches are structured and how they should be kind of, how the, how the program should work and how the methodology should all come together. And as many people as in this room is as many different preferences as we have on this issue. But the one thing I love about Ambassador Baptist Church is we understand, man, unity is so vital. That as we all fix our eyes on Jesus, allow the word of God and recognize I, I may have a little different preference or maybe a little different idea, but my point of difference doesn't have to become a point of division. Do you understand this? In a lot of churches, their points of difference become points of division. And down through Christian history, all of a sudden there's disunity division, distraction, and it's a wonder why the local church can't accomplish something in a community. Because rather than doing what they're meant to be doing, they're distracted by what's happening within the walls. Uh, This happens, there's preferences about worship music style. A particular person, when you were first saved, there was a particular type of music or a particular type of style of music or a particular song that meant so much to you and nobody will deny that that particular song in that particular style has huge implications to your heart and it means so much to you and God has used it so greatly and it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But if we're not careful will allow our desire for that style to keep us from just keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus and saying, you know what, there might be another person and their preference might be a little bit different than ours. And this takes a lot of humility. Now I'm not saying there is not absolute truth. God does speak And where he speaks, we need to follow his leading, his principles, his wisdom. But I think for some of us, we make the Bible much narrower than it actually is. And for others, we try to make it much broader than it actually is. Rather than just letting the Bible be the Bible. Letting it be loud where it is loud. Letting it be quiet where it is quiet. And letting it be silent where it is silent. Letting the Bible speak for itself. I don't know if they're going to put this on the screens, but it's a great thought. Healthy churches are able to differentiate between matters of truth and matters of tradition. And I'm going to say this. We just as a church, we tend to be more traditional. I think we probably always will be. It's just, it's just kind of a little of who we are. It's a little bit of what, what we've been. And it's probably continue to be what we will continue to be. Everybody has to kind of be who God created them to be. It's just, it's kind of the DNA. However, we want to be very careful that in the way we engage people who come in or engage this issue or that issue, that we do it with great humility. That we do it with a spirit of unbelievable graciousness. And when the word of God and the spirit of God begin to move, that we have the courage to move with it. And allow God to do what God wants to do. If we don't learn to differentiate between what is closed-handed matters, that is things that, man, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scriptures, and those absolute truth issues, we've got to hold tightly and close our fists to those things. We've got to know what things we've got to hold tightly to and what things we hold, need to hold lightly to. And it takes a very wise Christian to know the difference. What is it that I hold tightly to 
And what is it that I'm going to hold lightly to? Truth, traditions. Both important. Both have a part. But how we engage it becomes very, very vital to the overall health of a church. Um, I've had several times in my life where I've elevated a religious preference in my own heart and have given it more emphasis and priority than even the scriptures did. I've been through those seasons. I've walked through those paths. I've been there. And in some ways, maybe there are places where I'm there right now and I don't even know it. I, I, who, who, man, only, oh, God knows our hearts, right? I'm constantly trying to allow God's spirit and God's heart to lead through those things. But I'm saying this, whenever I've allowed that to happen, it's always ended poorly. It's amazing how it hurts rather than helps, destroys rather than heals. So we see here the good thing can become a bad thing when the good thing becomes a supreme thing. We have no right to customize Jesus to fit our preferences and traditions. We don't personalize him. He revolutionizes us. And that's what Christ wants to do. So I want to shift gears for a moment as we kind of come to this thing in a conclusion. As we study this passage, we're going to see here where Hezekiah takes this brass serpent and, and as we said several weeks ago, every one of us are created to worship something or someone. As we said in the, at the very beginning of this series, you can't help but worship. You were created to worship. Uh, passage after passage after passage teaches us that we were designed for it. We were created to worship. Because of that, um, because we were created to worship... The removal of idols doesn't entirely fix the problem of idolatry. Because we were created for this thing. To simply remove an idol doesn't fix our problem of idolatry. You say, why not? It simply creates an emptiness, a vacuum, where another idol will eventually be elevated to fill its void. Because you were created for worship. Because there is something in your heart that has to worship something or someone. If you simply remove it, you create a vacuum, you create a void, and eventually another idol will fill its place. This is why so many of us struggle when it comes to addictions, when it comes to changing, when it comes to turning over a new leaf, however we want to, uh, you know, kind of phrase it. We struggle with it because we, we say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remove this thing from my life. And, and then all of a sudden there's an empty. We didn't realize that was actually an idol. It was something that we were looking to for fulfillment and satisfaction and acceptance and approval. And all of a sudden we push that thing away and our heart feels broken. We feel like something's wrong. And, and over time either it comes back or we replace it with something that's just as unhealthy and just as destructive. Because you cannot remove an idol. I'll say it this way. You can't relinquish an idol. You can't just give it up. Regardless of what idol we struggle with. Whether it's pleasure. The idol of pleasure. The idol of entertainment. The idol of tradition or achievement as we talked about last, year, uh, last week. We cannot remove idolatry. We can only replace it with a true source of fulfillment and satisfaction, and that is the person of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our last thought this morning, and that is simply this. The replacement of idolatry. Relinquishing idols won't fully solve the idolatry problem. Removing idols won't fully solve the idolatry problem. 
Replacing idols with something that can fully satisfy is the only way to solve the idolatry issue. You cannot remove your idol. What you, go back over the last six weeks. What idol do you just kind of struggle with? You can't remove it. You can't relinquish it. The only thing you can do is replace it with a greater, more dynamic personal relationship with Jesus Christ. As we talked about last year, that abiding relationship with Christ. Leaning more fully on Him. Abiding in His presence in a greater manner. Looking to Him for your righteousness, your satisfaction, your fulfillment. Looking to Christ and Christ alone. You cannot relinquish. You cannot remove. You can only replace idols. And you will either replace it with another idol that's just as unhealthy... Or you will replace it with the one that was meant to inhabit that space in your heart. The person of Jesus Christ and an abiding relationship with him on an ongoing basis. That's why in the Gospel of John, chapter number 3, verse 30, oh, John declares, He must increase, but I must decrease. It's all about elevating Christ. Giving him greater supremacy over more arenas of your life. Oh, as we find, as we surrender to him in greater ways, it's amazing how in each area we surrender to Christ, he allows his peace and joy, his presence to fill those empty voids. We must elevate Christ back to his rightful place of supremacy. So here's the big idea as we close it up today. Replace idols. Replace idols. Don't just remove them. This is huge. In fact, if there was one statement that I could give you to encapsulate this entire series, it is this statement. Many of you heard about messages about the idols of achievement and the idols of pleasure. Oh, the idols of success, the idols of power, the idols of entertainment. And so we kind of like, I'm going to give them up. I'm going to relinquish them. And, that, and I'm going uh, to remove them. And, and the reality is you can't because you were designed to worship. You can only replace the idol. And you'll either replace it with something else that's going to take you down the same path again and again and again. And a lot of people do this. They just live their lives going from one idol to another idol. They look to money to bring fulfillment and satisfaction. When that doesn't pay off, they look to sex to give them fulfillment and satisfaction. When that doesn't happen, then they're looking to, you know, power. And they look to achievement. And they'll go down all these paths thinking something will satisfy. Something will bring fulfillment. When it all along, Jesus alone satisfies. And an ongoing abiding relationship with him is really the only hope we have of finding fulfillment and peace. Oh, that we would replace that idolatry with more time with Christ. I'm not talking in a legalistic manner like, you know, those of you who get with, abide with Jesus for seven minutes are like more superior to those of you who only spend six minutes. I'm not, I'm not, we're not going down that path. But I'm talking about in your personal walk with the Lord replacing those things where you're prone to idolatry with time with Christ, replacing it with focus on Christ, with replacing it with investment in Christ's mission, replacing it with just praise and worship toward your living God. I mean, think of the unity that would be fostered as a congregation if we held our biblical convictions tightly and our personal preferences lightly. The unity peace, the camaraderie that God's spirit would bring. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, 
there is liberty. God wants to liberate you from those things that are holding you captive. Those things that you're drawn to that you think will bring satisfaction and fulfillment. And I want to say to you today, the only thing that brings ultimate satisfaction is an abiding relationship with Jesus. If you're sitting here today and you are not experiencing peace and and you're not experiencing fulfillment and satisfaction, I want to say to you, you can. You can experience fulfillment. You can experience satisfaction. You can experience joy as you anchor your hopes for those things into the person of Jesus Christ and an ongoing relationship with Him. Stop trying to find your satisfaction in how good you can project your image to be at church. I hope that Christ works through you and He grows you into His image. But can I say this? Anchoring your satisfaction, your identity, and who you project yourself to be when you come in these walls won't ultimately satisfy you, Jesus will satisfy you. And and man, just going through the motions of some religious tradition, well, I go to church every week and I do this every week. Praise God for that. And I hope the Spirit of God's leading you to do those things. And I hope that you're doing it with the right motive that actually draws you closer to Christ. But it is possible to do those things with ulterior motives, uh, just tainted in a way that'll that'll literally sabotage the very relationship that you're trying to develop. If you're not doing it with the ultimate purpose to bring glory and honor to the person of Jesus Christ. Can I say this? You can find satisfaction. You can find fulfillment. But it's not going to be found in these idols. Not even the idol of religious tradition. I know people who have gone to their churches literally for decades thinking that if they just do enough rituals, if they just perform enough of these kind of religious kind of, you know, traditions, if they just, you know, walk the right walk and they talk the right talk, that that in and of itself is what brings satisfaction. Can I say, these things might be a fruit of a right walk with God, but it is not the root of what creates that walk with God. And there's a massive difference between the two. And it's very, very important to understand the difference. So I leave you with this. Good things become bad things when they become supreme things. What idols need to be replaced in your life with a deeper, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone? That's the question. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father,